When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, I'm Kyrie Douglas. I'm a producer here at Overheard, and this is part three of our four-part series focusing on music, exploration, and Black history. It's called The Soul of Music. National Geographic explorers will be sitting down with some of our favorite musicians to discuss how history and the natural world inspires their art and adventures. Today's guests are explorer Justin Dunavit and musician Chief Zion Atunde Ajwa formerly known as Christian Scott. Chief Zion is a multi-instrumentalist and producer, known primarily for his phenomenal trumpet and horn playing. He's a two-time Edison Award winner, and he has five Grammy nominations. Born and raised in New Orleans, he's the nephew of jazz innovator and legendary saxman Donald Harrison Jr. In 2019, Zion released an album called Ancestral Recall, a concept that he describes almost like a form of cultural epigenetics a sort of tapping into the experiences of one's ancestors in the present. Zion told Justin that when he recorded the album, which you'll hear a bit of later, he found himself coming up with patterns that mirrored many traditional African rhythms. 90% of what you hear being exhibited rhythmically is me playing. Right? So all those layers and things that you hear on Ancestral Recall is me playing A-way drums, Akan drums, you know, Danumba drums, you know. To finish the record up, I sent it to legitimate babas in the old way, like Weedy Brahma. And when I sent it around to these guys to have them add layers of djembe or, you know, sangbang, kinkani, these kinds of instruments to it, they were all calling me back like, where, how? You know, how, you know, Weedy specifically, he was like, you know, this rhythm that you're playing is casa soro. This rhythm is Sunu, Agweet. These are the exact rhythms that you're playing. Now, I come from the initiated space in America, mm-hmm. but I don't have the same experience of being in the initiated spaces, the backside spaces. Right. In, in Nigeria or Ghana or Benin or Senegal or Gambia. Right, You, right. you feel me? Uh-huh. I had no idea that I was creating a frame that not only housed and had the rhythms, Mm -hmm. but also the questions and answers and the dialectic components of the rhythms as well. So it was literally ancestral recall. Somewhere in my bloodline, the experience exists. The notion of ancestral recall has particular resonance for National Geographic explorer and archeologist, Justin Dunavant. He has a special interest in marine archeology, span diving down beneath the ocean to excavate what remains of the past. Justin was a contributor to Nat Geo's Into the Depths podcast, which followed explorer Tara Roberts and other black scuba divers across the world as they searched for buried shipwrecks from the transatlantic slave trade. What would you call yourself? What would I call myself? Yeah. Oh, shoot. What I'm telling myself right now, like when I wake up in the morning and I ask myself, who am I? I'm, I'm recovering ancestral memory. Mm. That's what I tell myself. And I'm still exploring what that means mm-hmm. and what it entails. Oh, amazing. Yeah. But that's like, yeah, 
Wow, that's perfect. Yeah. Wow. This is Overheard, a show where we eavesdrop on the wild conversations we have here at Nat Geo and follow them to the edges of our big, weird, beautiful world. After the break, Chiefs Zion and Justin discuss Zion's childhood in New Orleans, how he created a new instrument, and what he calls stretch music. But first, fuel your curiosity with a free one-month trial subscription to Nat Geo Digital. You'll have unlimited access on any device, anywhere, ad-free with our app to let you download stories to read offline. Explore every page ever published with a century of digital archives at your fingertips. Check it all out for free at natgeo.com slash exploremore. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, I guess just to kick it off, one, thanks for coming out. It's, oh, thank it's good you. Good to be here and oh, honor that you can make time for this. Uh, honestly, I'm just like, uh, I'm floating right now. Yeah. Just, yeah having a <laughs> moment to really just uh, share energy and time with you. So I'm grateful. No, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Well, let's let's kick it off with a, just an intro about, you know, who you are, what you do, mm-hmm. and however you want to define that or take that. Uh, I'm Chief Zainatunde Ajua. I'm a sonic architect and a multi-instrumentalist, a producer and composer. Um, I also own and operate an app company and record label called Stretch Music, and uh, am the crown chieftain and Oba of the Shotokan Nation of Maroons or uh, Black Indians of Louisiana and New Orleans. Ooh, that's a powerful title. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about Nigeria earlier too, you know. Yeah, Obas, you know, it, it's um, it's a carryover from. Uh, those lineages and histories. So so sometimes we, we refer to Chieftain as Oba as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm going to bounce around a bit. So how, mm-hmm. what does that title mean? How did you get, could mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about that and, and sure. what it means more specifically for you to have it mm-hmm. in this moment? Absolutely. So I um, come from uh, West African stylized Chieftain uh, that has survived its experience in what is now New Orleans, Louisiana. The African descent people of this region, um, they have been able to hold on uh, to so many vestiges of their known past and also unknown past uh, through this tradition. Uh, My grandfather is a guy named Big Chief Donald Harrison Sr. Uh, This is the only man to lead four nations of what we call Maroons. Some people also use the terminology Black Indian uh, or Mardi Gras Indian. Mardi Gras Indian specifically is perceived as a pejorative and belittling term because it essentially uh, uh, labels a group of people and these nations um, with a cultural exhibition they were not allowed to take part in because now it's something that the city and municipality can monetize as a, a great cultural uh, component of New Orleans. So we label them Mardi Gras. Mm. But these uh, specific nations uh, have their roots in West Africa. 
as we learn about this tradition, uh, there are many different pillars and roots to it. There's a route that deals with uh, the arrival of West Africans into the region in the 17-teens, mm. right? Um, many Senegambian uh, people were brought into the region. So when the French decided they were going to build New Orleans, they didn't just grab any Africans. They went and grabbed Africans that were from areas that were alike. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to where, right, you, you understand what I'm saying? So they're going to grab Africans that come from the Volta region and these sort of spaces mm-hmm. you know, because we know that they're going to be able to cultivate these things because it's their lifestyle already, right? right? Um, but also because of that, many of these folks were able to self-liberate and go into the marshlands and swamps and be rebuild because this looks like my neighborhood. Right. <laughs> right? So for right. lack of a better way of putting it. Mm-hmm. So, so this is one of the roots of this culture. Um, you know, another known root is obviously after emancipation. Uh, the the experiences and the relationships between blacks and natives obviously having interacted with each other for centuries at this point. Um, uh, the blacks in New Orleans wanted to also pay homage to them, and this is part of the reason that the ceremonial regalia resembles some the Plains natives. Mm. Uh, some people deal with that in other ways. They conjecture about, you know, some of them seeing the Wild West shows and, and, the, and their ceremonial regalia maybe being a bit more dynamic than some of the ceremonial regalia you'll see with uh, t- tribes from southeast Louisiana, you know. Um, you know, uh, so, so, so in other words, uh, what you may uh, look at in as a traditional Western, uh, uh, Western depiction of a native's dress, you know, with the war bond and these things, a bustle, those sort of things. Mm-hmm. Um, those are not as common, uh, um, among the indigenous in Louisiana, mm-hmm. right? So, so part of the distinction in dress comes from also seeing some of those images, but again, it is a culture that is a secret culture. You have roles, obviously. You have your chieftain and his queen. You know, your your youngers, the next generation, little chieftain, this sort of thing. These are the English versions of these the lieutenants mm-hmm. titles. You also have an equivalent to a medicine man or your sort of shamanic energy. Um, there's a person called a wild man who's sort of, in English. This is the the, the tribe's enforcer. Uh, you have a flag boy. This is the man that carries the gang standard. He's generally the diplomat, so he can speak multiple dialects. Uh, in, and yes, in Louisiana, we have multiple ways of expressing. Uh, and traditionally, when you see the Maroons on Carnival Day and St. Joseph's Night, they are they are not speaking English to each other, right? So generally, your diplomat is the one that can speak the different dialects. So, so in other words, he may be meeting a tribal banner that uh, can say that they have, um, as an example, maybe they are Fula and Atikapa, right? Which is this is you know in terms of their sort of cultural energy. One is a, a Louisiana indigenous space. The other one is a is a West African space that actually exists in multiple countries, like Fulani, right? So when you're meeting with them, there may be words that come from their shared experience that don't necessarily come from yours. Maybe your corridor may be speaking vestiges of Bambara, right? And and so so there may be some synergy, but not a lot. So it's a highly stylized uh, West African retention mm-hmm. and culture that essentially constitutes a new world chiefdom that was built out of those experiences that has a priority historically of also acknowledging our Native brothers and sisters. Mm, that's powerful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, coming through this, of course, you have 
been drawn to music mm. as a tool to mm. do the work that we're doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah, the shared work. And the shared mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. And the horn was the initial mm-hmm. entryway in. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a bit about how that mm-hmm. how that relationship emerged and mm-hmm. if there was a piece of music or a note that you heard that just blew you away and made you realize I got to pick that thing up? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, I think, um, well, firstly, learning to play music uh, in Louisiana and specifically in New Orleans, I think it's real a really interesting experience for a younger person in that uh you have to learn the music in canon right so so let's say you you're going to learn to be a creative improviser but you're growing up in cleveland um because of the the histories of of that space and levels of access to certain information um generally you're going to walk into the music from the space that either feels good to you musically or from the known spaces that your elders have mm-hmm. right but maybe their relationship to to creative improvised music of black american music we say stretch music like, we don't like the term jazz mm-hmm. but maybe their beginnings in the music starts in the 50s right, right? so most of your teachers after they were if they're the children of the folks that seated that moment, they're going to start you in the 50s. Mm. In New Orleans, generally, they're going to start you in the 1890s, right, where the spasm music and these things really started to grow out and uh, have a more uh, cosmopolitan relationship to what was going on and, and, and exist in our zeitgeist in a way where the music became popular, right? right? So when I'm 11 years old and I'm starting to learn to play the trumpet, I couldn't go into a space and say, I want to play Donna Lee, which is composed by Miles Davis in the 40s or 50s, right? Uh, without first playing the Tiger Leaf rag. Okay. Do you get what so I'm yeah, saying? You so you have to start it the... at the beginning, okay. right? And so that made it so much more fun to me because there was sort of a historian's approach to learning the music. Right. Because you had to excavate, right? right. And um, so, so when I was small... That was always the most fun was to be around the really, really old musicians, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's pictures of my brother and I and my cousin Brian on the laps of Danny Barker, oh. you know, Lulu Barker. This is a couple that Danny specifically was, you know, this is a guy that was responsible for what we now see as the resurgence of jazz in New Orleans, okay. right? In the 60s, okay. he's a guy that took all of these kids that were going to the church bands and things and organizing them into brass bands and things and teaching them the old way. I think for that reason, I gr- initially gravitated to the trumpet mm-hmm. uh, because it was generally the leader's instrument. Okay. Like the trumpet is a proclamatory instrument, That's right? So, you know, there's stories about you being able to hear Buddy Bolden play on the other side of the river, right? Buddy Bolden is one of the men that is credited as the creators of jazz along with folks like Jelly Roll Morton. Um, but... It's an instrument that no matter what is going on, it has the ability to call you in, mm-hmm. right? And um, when I was small, you know, my elders, they would always say that I had a sound that could call the children home. I was a kid myself. Wow. You know, I would get a little goosebumps <laughs> thinking about it. <laughs> right. And um, I, I just appreciated how open and warm they were and willing to impart. People don't talk about those things mm-hmm. generationally so much anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I learned from Danny Barker. He would always say, you know, little Harrison, blues and jazz are synonyms for each other. You know, you're a kid. I'm like maybe six. I don't know what a synonym is right. at that point, but I'm listening. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you say blues and jazz are synonyms for each other. And, uh, you know, the only difference is that jazz is blues that learn to speak all languages. Mm. And 
I, I carry that with me in every moment mm. where I'm composing it. You know, all these things, these are things that I was told as a little, little boy. Right, six years and, old. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, uh, so I think that part of it made it so attractive to me. Mm-hmm. And then also to see how much love the musicians interacted with. Mm. Man, New Orleanian musicians, I think, may be the most loving community of people I've ever seen. Oh, wow. And so, and but the guys that were generally at the forefront of those, in, that those instances were the trumpet players. Mm-hmm. Right, and it sounds like there was an intention, like not just on your part, but of course mm-hmm. on the people around you that, mm-hmm. that saw you had something going in you mm-hmm. and you had the ability to pick up this horn mm-hmm. and do some things with it that not everybody else was capable of yeah. doing. You know, the thing is, it's like what's interesting is, is from growing up in that environment and really seeing what was going on. You know, when I was in elementary school, the school had 100 trumpeters. Mm-hmm. You couldn't tell a young black kid in New Orleans that they couldn't be those things because the the airport is named Louis Armstrong. Right. Powerful, powerful, powerful. I'm wondering, too, I know you brought up this idea of stretch music, yeah. and I think it's important that we have definitions and we define definitions mm-hmm. and we have the ability to name and rename mm-hmm. as we need to. Mm, absolutely. And I want to give the opportunity to, to elaborate a little bit about on, on stretch yeah, music. Absolutely. Um, ancestral so, recall, maybe. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, we were creating music that tried to unify everyone on, in one understanding, which was really that it doesn't matter what cultural purview you have, uh, all human beings are valid. And the music that they make to express themselves and to to share stories and to uh, to heal and for cathartic moments, all of those things are valid. The imperative in stretch music is really about uh, turning the singular into the plural and acknowledging that someone that is playing a Polish folk song or a Celtic uh, traditional song or an opera uh, from France or uh, rhythms from the Saramaka mm-hmm. or, you know, an Indian raga that if they look for each other musically first as a priority and see all of the things that each party is contributing, it humanizes them in a way that allows them to be able to walk together in, in the actual world. I want to get into some of these tracks. Okay. All right, so my favorite track, we're going to start off with that one. Cool. Diaspora. I already hear it. You know? Yep. I was humming this on the way oh, over. Oh, so good. <laughs> I love this one. Remember, you said something about her playing the flute. Yeah. She's going to redefine oh, how yeah. it is. Yeah. She, um, I always say this every night from the bandstand about Elena Penderhughes' contribution in this moment. Uh, I've always felt that if record label interest and, you know, the business folks, uh, you know, stay out of her way and she is allowed to seed her own vision, that we will have a very difficult time remembering what the flute sounded like preceding her contribution. She is that great. The song is about many things. Most people conjecture that it's about the transatlantic diaspora specifically, 
and it is, but it, it has a wider definition of diaspora. We know that, you know, when you're in spaces with intellectuals, when they speak about the diaspora, they don't include Africa. Mm-hmm. You get what I'm saying? It's the very specific, and most people don't think like think about that, but it's true. Right. Um, but for me, when I think about the African diaspora, it includes Africa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you get what yeah. I mean? So, so I wanted to make and build a, a composition that tapped onto all of these different energies in terms of how the harmony is laid out, what the melody is doing, uh, what the rhythms are doing, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like there is a moment in the beginning with the piano riff that you hear that harkens to salsa music and, and Afro-Latin music. You know, you can look at music from, from Havana. Uh, you can look at music from San Juan, these mm-hmm. kinds of energies, uh, kind of bomba y plena music, plena, you know, yeah. uh, merengue music, these things that came out of the African experience in, in those spaces. But the the way that the harmony is actually moving is really maybe more akin to what you would hear from an um, mbira or thumb piano or mm-hmm. traditional music you might hear in Tanzania mm-hmm. on the thumb piano, Zimbabwe, right? Right. right. Yeah. So so the melody. You can find that kind of phrase in most spaces where you have deep blues roots, mm. right? You might someone would say, I don't know, but I was told. You know what I mean? These kinds of things, yeah. right? So so it, it feels as much rooted blue, blues as it also does Baptist and Pentecostal church and all of those things. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times we break up, you know, the the spiritual and the secular and non-secular, all of these things, we separate those yep. those things in, in, in terms of like the Western mind separates those. Mm. In terms of our actual cultural exhibition and the way that we interact as black people, we don't separate any of those things, mm-hmm. right? So right. it's like, to me, it never made sense that they were labeled and and codified in the way that they were because they're not separate, mm-hmm. right? This is how these human beings actually communicate musically. So... Every single part in this song, every single thing that you hear has multiple points of entry uh, that relate to the larger diaspora. That's powerful. That is powerful. All right. So I have, I have a question for you. All right. You know, All right. You know it, it's so interesting to me, you know, what, it, what you do and what you've built. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think uh, particularly having the moment where there's a focus on the maritime, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and what happened in so many of these actual uh, exchanges is the way I'll put it. Right. Um, for me, I wanted to know, like, what was it specifically, if there was a specific instance or, or, or experience that you had mm-hmm. that made that feel like a priority in this moment? Yes. And it's, it's wild. It's literally this moment that replays like a movie, whenever I recall it. Mm. It was when I was working to help excavate the Clotilda. Okay. Which mm. is known as the last slave ship to come sure. to the United States. Mm-hmm. The movie Descendant just came out talking about it. People mm-hmm. of Africatown built that community. Mm-hmm. I was helping to excavate, and while I was leaving, my grandmother's ring snapped. And I actually wear my grandmother's ring now. I actually glued mm. it back together. But it snapped, and I had been wearing it for a long time to get that energy of yeah. my literal ancestors. Right. And I was like, okay, I don't know what this means. A couple days into excavating the Clotilda, 
I find myself just waking up in the morning and crying. And it's not like a sad cry. Mm -hmm. It's more like a relief. And I was trying to figure out what exactly is going on and what does this mean? And I talked to my colleague who was excavating with me and I, I told her like, yeah, this is what I'm feeling, experiencing. And she said, it's a heavy, mm. emotional. Mm. She said her elders told her, you need to fortify yourself spiritually because there's a lot of things that are going to come out of this. And it's also this opportunity to channel that energy into places it needs to go. And that coupled with the fact that we interviewed two black scuba divers that literally dove into the hull of a slave ship for the first time and them talking about this release that they felt. And it was, part of it was sort of confusing and disorienting, but also part of it was sort of liberating. And, uh, and yeah, when I, when I was excavating on, that, on the, the boat, uh, my mother texted me and was like, you know, your grandfather's buried in Alabama. And I said, I had no idea. And she sent me his niece's phone number and address. And I was literally, it hit me that, I'm literally, while I'm exploring this thing that we call archaeology and studying black history on a big level, I'm also literally going deep into my own personal family story. I could train anybody to do what I do if you just want to know how to pick up a trial or know how to scuba dive and do. But the level of intentionality and the level of responsibility that I have means that I'm the only one that's going to do it the way that I'm going to do it. Right. And I came back from that trip and literally meditated for about an hour. And I just started bawling. Right. Mm. And again, it wasn't just a sad, no, it was a release. Mm -hmm. And I realized I gained my grandfather as an ancestor. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. for so long I had been paying attention to my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And I had been paying attention to my grandfather. Right. Mm. And I was Patrick in the physical, mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. And then that's when it hit me. Like, I tell people all the time as recovering this memory, we've forgotten more things than we remember. Absolutely, yeah. And my job, what I see my role as, is mm -hmm. us trying to explore and recover as many of those as possible and putting them to work in a productive manner for the moment in time that we need it now. Mm. And that's sort of the, the moment that that happened, yeah. <laughs> Man, talk about heavy. I know we got a couple of uh, questions that came in from Instagram. Yeah. They were like, why do you sound like a newscaster? <laughs> I'm always like, hi, this is Chief. <laughs> yeah, come on. <laughs> no, no, it's good. All right. What is your favorite instrument? Don't have one. Okay. I, I like, um, I can't wait to have a house party so you can come to my crib and hey. see all of these drums and <laughs> instruments. You know, it's like, um, there's a musical instrument museum in Phoenix, mm. outside of Phoenix, and they have stuff from all over the world. And I would say that my collection of instruments through the diaspora rivals their collection. Okay. I have stuff from okay. ev everywhere, man. And uh, so, so it's hard to say one instrument. Mm -hmm. um, but if if I had to reduce it to one, I it would say my favorite to play. One, yep. <laughs> oh, that's hard. That, that, that makes it different. Okay, that actually makes it different. Okay. Yeah, because well, what I was going to say before you said yeah, that sorry, yeah. was Chief Ajua's bow, which is a really beautiful and um, you know sort of golden, mm -hmm. uh, you know, double sided harp that we've created. Uh, so a couple of years ago, I embarked on this journey to try and create a 21st century corollary to the types of rooted string instruments, specifically double-sided harps, from West Africa that actually are the harmonic roots uh, to what we now refer to as blues in the Delta uh, in places like New Orleans, and Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, Arkansas, these areas. Um for me, 
that was a really important thing to do because I could hear uh, specifically in rock and roll, uh, specifically in a lot of uh, modern blues and, and also creative improvised music, stretch music, we like to say for jazz, um, that the fundamental pillar harmonically uh, being the blues is the root, um, that people were, uh, you just heard less of it. So in other words, you you can't make a gumbo without a roux. Mm, mm-hmm. You get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's soup. Right. Do you get what I mean? Yeah. And so to, for my ear, when I would hear uh, the modern rock and roll records, I heard no blues, which makes it not that to me. Right. And so a huge part of it was to try and make sure that we could create records and musical uh, spaces uh, that really served as a means of saving the blues of tomorrow, mm. right? And so I, I, I wanted to embark on that kind of musical journey, but in order to do that, I had to excavate first, mm. right? And and the things that I found, you know, it's it's actually astonishing to me that even in this moment in time when we define uh, forms like jazz, a lot of times those definitions are limited. You know, people will say that it's West African rhythms or African rhythms mixed with European harmony, mm. which is to say that a continent as large as Africa has no harmonic traditions, right? right? Let's, <laughs> let's learn to read between the lines here. Right. Uh, this is false. Mm. Uh, those people, when they were captured and brought over here, they brought a lot of elements of their culture to it. And obviously, uh, the harmony and the mel- melodic components of their music also survived those experiences, right. right? So what I wanted to do was to create an instrument that was tethered to West Africa in a way that had ancestral memory built into the actual methodology and how it's actually shaped. Mm. Uh, for Specifically for young black children uh, in New Orleans, to be able to learn to play music on musical instruments that actually had their fathers' and mothers' memories and hands in them. All right. I'm going to give you choice of the last song. Okay. Uh, there's West of the West. Okay. And there is Ritual, Rise of Chief Atra. Yeah, definitely Ritual. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hands down. I figured, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Man, this song has so many layers in it and such a fun song to, to record because it's, um, I tried to, cr- to recreate the kind of energy that you get in call and response music, uh, which is traditionally a very African approach. You know, yep. with, you, go, you can go anywhere throughout the larger diaspora and hear that back and forth. So it's done with strings and also the trumpet voice. They're answering each other, you know, questions and answers, calls and responses. Um, 
But what I, I really loved about building this one was you can hear the trumpet sound is a really unique kind of layered sound. It has kind of a bite to it. There's an octaver on it. And I built this sound specifically to feel like it was multiple generations or ancestors speaking to the horn. Right? So it's like maybe you have a baritone. Maybe that's your grandfather or great-grandfather. And then you have a soprano. That might be your mother or grandmother or aunt or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. All of it is built into the one sound. So the, even though I'm speaking, it's all those energies speaking through that sound. Um, I wanted it to feel that way and to have those layers because in legitimate moments of right in these spaces, when we talk about ritual, it's always the best moments when they're multi-generational moments. When I think about those memories, all of them are rooted in the elders imparting to the youngers or guiding the youngers. Sometimes people look at the titles and they're like, oh God, just this guy's grandiose titles about himself. But it's not about me. Right. Do you get what I'm saying? So it's like, when people, you know, when people hear a title like that or view a title like that, they automatically think about that, the Ajua part Mm -hmm. of it. But that's not what I'm speaking about. What I'm speaking about is all of the people that lifted me and carried me to, to now being Ajua, mm. to now being that, the person that we mark as a chief and all of these things. All of those small, specific moments, all of those moments of calling, responding, and me following, not leading, and learning these ways. So the trumpet having all of their voices wrapped up in my voice was... Um, as a conceptual pillar, that was one of the most fun things to record on that record. That was musician Chief Zion Atunde Ajwa in conversation with explorer Justin Donovan. If you like what you hear and you want to support more content like this, please rate and review us in your podcast app and consider a National Geographic subscription. That's the best way to support Overheard. Go to natgeo.com slash explore more to subscribe. Learn more about Zion at his website, chiefajua.com. That's spelled C-H-I-E-F-A-D-J-U-A-H. And you can follow him on Instagram at Christian Scott Official. You can also download his Stretch Music app, which is an interactive music player in the Google Play Store or the Apple App Store. You can also follow Justin online to stay up to date with his latest adventures. He has a website, justindunavant.com, that's spelled J-U-S-T-I-N-D-U-N-N-A-V-A-N-T. Or follow him on social media at ArchFieldNotes. That's all in the show notes right there in your podcast app. This week's Overheard episode is produced by me, Kyrie Douglas. Our senior producers are Brian Gutierrez and Jacob Pinter. Our senior editor is Eli Chin. Our manager of audio is Carla Wills, who edited this episode. Our executive producer of audio is Devara Ardalan. Our photo editor is Julie Howe. Ted Woods sound designed this episode, and Hans Dale Sue composed our theme music. The Soul of Music series is produced in collaboration with National Geographic Music. Special thanks to Hannah Grace Van Cleve, Jennifer Stilson, and Brittany Greer. This podcast is a production of National Geographic Partners. The National Geographic Society, committed to illuminating and protecting the wonder of our world, funds the work of National Geographic explorer Justin Dunavant. Michael Tribble is the Vice President of Integrated Storytelling. Nathan Lump is National Geographic's Editor-in-Chief. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.